Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 188th episode of the Nauticast, titled Kingslayers, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 5, in which Jamie finally tells Brienne the full story of how he became the Kingslayer right before their dinner date with Roose Bolton, who's getting ready to kill his own king. And hey, a bunch of people think Brienne killed Renly, so it's just Kingslayers all the way down in this chapter. Nothing but Kingslayers. Oops, all Kingslayers. <laughs> we just had Christmas, and there's a myth of three kings involved with that, so we can probably tie it in pretty accurately to the calendar. <laughs> Gotta have one for each. It's, uh, it's just math. So our, our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all the published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King. Jamie claims Ned wouldn't have believed him regarding the Eris and Wildfire plot. My question is, is that actually true? Yeah, Jamie being Jamie, I'm not surprised he would convince himself of that, but assuming he could get some therapy, if only, do you think he could come to realize that Ned, who was well aware of how far gone Eris was, might have listened? Or am I giving Ned too much credit and Jamie was right not to tell him, in the sense that it would make no difference? And what do you think about that, Manu? That's that's definitely a big unanswered question uh, after this chapter. Yeah, um, I do think we need to decouple that because uh, Jamie, whether he's right or not to tell Ned is different than whether Ned would believe it or not. Um, Good call. Because I think Jamie probably should have told someone <laughs> um, <laughs> at some point, maybe before this, it might have helped turn things. I don't know exactly how. Um Ned, I kind of go back and forth with, and I think part of that is intentional. I think we're supposed to kind of turn over this question with no good answer, per se, in our heads. Because um, Ned, I do think, has some kind of code or believes in some level of the norms here in society. He is not someone who is necessarily revolutionary in how he approaches living in this world in the Seven Kingdoms. Um, he still observes the general laws as they come down from the king to him as Warden of the North. Um, so I think there is something just kind of beyond the pale of a Kingsguard killing the king slate or the Kingsguard killing the king. Um, but I do think there might be room to kind of mitigate the circumstances, but I think Ned would still come down, okay, you had a point, but this is still something that is punishable under this regime, under this institution of the crown and the Kingsguard. So I think he would still, regardless of Jamie's reason, still at least advocate for sending him to the wall and taking away the white cloak. Yeah, I think you're right. And part of this is just you have to also decouple Jamie from the character that George initially conceived. Because it's not even just that Jamie killed Eris, it's that he was sitting on the throne when Ned walked in the room. Which, to be honest, I don't think that makes a lot of sense for this Jamie. Like, he doesn't really think about that. And I don't, I don't really think it makes sense for him to do that anymore if he's not going to try to be king of Westeros. Like, the guy we kind of learn more about in this chapter, I feel like he would just be, like, sitting on the, the steps of the throne with his head in his hands, rocking back and forth when Ned walked in. And I think that just added to Ned's suspicions. But yeah, I think I think Ned might have been so set against Jamie in that moment that he would have probably had some difficulty believing him at first. I think he would have believed Eris capable of it, but I think he might have thought, oh yeah, sure, Jamie, you just came up with that five seconds ago when you realized you'd have to tell people something about why you did this. And I think, you know, even... Even beyond the question of, of whether Ned would have believed him or whether Jamie was right to conceal it, 
even if Ned did believe him, like, logistically, that's not an easy task to, like, get all the wildfire out from under King's Landing. Like, that means trusting a lot of other people. And you got to find out from, like, the pyromancers if there's any left by the time Jamie's done where it all is. I mean, Jamie did kill everyone who knows about it for a reason because he didn't want him to set it off. But, yeah, especially when you're just trying to set up a new government. Okay, guys, our first job is to go around to every building in King's Landing, knock on the door and go, hey, so, last guy, not us, last manager, we're coming in, new team. He put a nuke under your floorboards. Can we get in there to to dig up the nuke and hopefully not set it off? And then you have to hopefully not set it off over and over and over again. Obviously, you know, that's not really what Jamie was thinking about in the moment. But I think, I mean, that's just, that's that's the true horror of what Ares did is that it's it's really kind of impossible to to put that sword back in the sheath, which I think is part of, partially George's point that it's like a dragon. Like once you unleash it, you can't really, can't put it back in the cave. But yeah, so I think Jamie is in is in pretty much an impossible position here, and I don't know if it yeah I don't know if it would have made a huge difference uh, whether he told Ned Ned the truth or not. I think it was just when he saw Ned's eyes, he realized all at once, oh, this is who I'm going to be now. <laughs> you're you're all going to hate me, and that's why it had to be Ned because uh, as Jake said, Ned knew about Eris's crimes more intimately than most, and even he still condemned Jamie. Like that's how you know that's how you know how bad it was going to be. So uh, thank you to Jake for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where our sworn sword and higher level patrons uh, get to ask us questions, as well as getting access to exclusive episodes, getting early access to our regular episodes, and a bunch more benefits. But we are here with a storm of swords, Jamie 5, and although it's usual, my noble duty to read the synopsis, this is your boy, this is your chapter, I guess you can have this one. Why, thank you, my benevolent co-host. <laughs> Very nice of me, I agree. Heron Hall's bathhouse was a dim, steamy, low-ceilinged room filled with great stone tubs. Back in Aria 6, Emmett explained our usage of fireworks factory. Well, folks, this is my fireworks factory, though it's more spa retreat than a factory, a place for loving couples to unburden themselves from the rigor of their lives. That and the great dirt stains from their time on the road. Brienne of Tarth is furiously scrubbing away, only stopping to cover her breasts when Jamie arrives. Jamie thinks nothing but virtuous thoughts of Brienne's body, romantically comparing her hands to that of Gregor Clegane's and her chest to that of a ten-year-old. Can you feel the love in the air? Jamie Lannister has a date with Lord Bolton tonight, but since polyamory is frowned upon, Jamie's fleas are unwelcome. He has the serving man undress him, and then he orders all of the attendants out. They didn't have to listen to Jamie's commands, him and Brienne being prisoners and all, but a life of subservience runs deep. They leave without hesitation, and finally, our OTP is alone. Jamie climbs into the same tub as Brienne, despite her protests. Have no fear, wench. Your thighs are purple and green, and I'm not interested in what you've got between them. Jamie's only fear was drowning there and then, but Brienne protests that too. Why should I care how you die? Jamie quips and smiles, as Jamie does, and focuses on his scrubbing as best he can. His left hand is good for nothing, but he gets the dirt off all the same, all while checking out Brienne's massive lats and shoulder muscles. Not satisfied by Brienne ignoring him, Jamie quips on. You should be glad I lost this hand. It's the hand guilty of all the things that make me a monster. Eris, Bran, my sister, I did it all with this, shoving his stump in her face. 
But it's the jibe that comes after that finally gets Brienne's attention. No wonder Renly died under your watch. She stands and turns, putting her whole briosi into it. Jamie beholds his love in all her glory and feels some life down below the water. He quickly gazes away and apologizes to Brienne. That was unbecoming of me, wench. Brienne, rightly, doesn't trust Jamie's contrition. He may be trying to make peace, but nothing he said five chapters into A Storm of Swords affords him the benefit of the doubt. Truces are built on trust, she says, and there's no way she'd ever trust the... The Kingslayer, yes, Jamie interrupts. Yeah, poor Eris, right? Fuck him, and honestly, fuck Robert too. He wouldn't be king if I hadn't done the deed, yet he gets to mock me as Oathbreaker while being paraded around as a hero. He tore the realms apart. Not me. Jamie scoffs at Brienne. He didn't do it for love, you fool. He clenched his fist before realizing there was no fist to clench, the phantom pain taunting him once again. Brienne's words, save the realm, trigger something deep within Jamie Lannister. Between the pain, the bath, the fever, he's becoming lightheaded, and old wounds long scabbed over are starting to reopen. His brother set the Blackwater aflame, he tells her, and Eris would have skinny-dipped in that mess if he was still around. Eris. Jamie wore his white cloak and gold armor that day. Brienne was confused, but the power of fever and confession had already taken hold. Unbidden, the fall of the Targaryen regime spills from Jamie's lips. After Connington fell, Eris knew Robert was the real deal, the realest deal since Damon Blackfire. Eris amassed what was left of his forces, though with the threat of violence, as he reminded Kingsguard Lewin Martell that his sister Elia was his guest before sending him off to battle with 10,000 Dornishmen. The Crown Prince Rhaegar urged Eris to recall Lord Tywin from the Rock, but no ravens returned from the West. And all the while, Eris saw traitors in every shadow, shadows the Master of Whisperers was eager to point out. So his grace commanded his alchemist to place caches of wildfire all over King's Landing, beneath Baylor's Sept and the hovels of Flea Bottom, under stables and storehouses, at all seven gates, even in the cellars of the Red Keep itself. This was all done in secret by the master pyromancers. Neither queen nor prince were aware. His hand, Lord Carlton Chested, was clever enough to suss out the plot, but his protestations and resignation were met with fire, and leader of the Fire Nation, Rosart, was made Hand of the King instead. Rosart, whose greatest accomplishment in life was... barbecuing Ned Stark's dad. And guess who was there to observe all that, to warm himself by the fires of Eris's traitors? That's right, Jamie Lannister. Eris deployed the other Kingsguard as needed... But not Jamie. Jamie was kept close, and Varys kept watch. But that proximity also meant Jamie heard, and Jamie saw, and Jamie knew. When Rhaegar fell at the trident, Eris had gone into full panic mode. The pregnant queen and Prince Viserys were sent to Dragonstone, but not Elia Martell. Eris needed her, and her son, to keep the Dornish loyal. The traitors want my city! I heard him tell Rosert, but I'll give them naught but ashes. Let Robert be king over charred bones and cooked meat. Eris Targaryen, the Mad King, was going to light the biggest fire the South had ever seen. But he didn't mean to die with the rest of King's Landing. Oh no, Eris would rise again, 
reborn as a dragon, and turn all his enemies to ash. The Lord of Winterfell was on his way down, but the Lord of Lannister made it to the city first. Jaime knew his father would back Robert after the trident, and Varys knew this too, but it was Grand Maester Pycelle that Eris chose to trust in that moment. Eris opened the gates, and Tywin sacked the city, while surely thinking of all the slights and insults he suffered as the Mad King's hand. It felt to me to hold the Red Keep, but I knew we were lost. I sent to Eris asking his leave to make terms. My man came back with the royal command. Bring me your father's head, if you are no traitor. The messenger also stated Lord Rosert was with the king. Jamie Lannister knew what that meant. Jamie found Rosert first, dressed plainly at the postern gate. Then he came for, and slew, the Mad King, before he could order a different fire toady to cook the city. Finally, days later, Jamie hunted down the rest of the pyromancers. Some bribed, others cried, but they all died on his golden sword. Jamie paused his story for a moment, looking at the hand that unmade Eris, that made him the Kingslayer, the very hand now unmade itself. It was my glory and my shame, and now I have neither. Who am I now? He turned to Brienne, looking as absurd as ever, but staring silently. Say something, he implored. Anything. Brienne finally asked, How come no one knows this? Why sit on this truth if it is the truth? The knights of the king's guard are sworn to keep the king's secrets. Would you have me break my oath? <laughs> Do you think the noble lord of Winterfell wanted to hear my feeble explanations? Such an honorable man. He only had to look at me to judge me guilty. By what right does the wolf judge the lion? By what right? Jamie Lannister violently lurches and shivers before falling into the arms of Brienne, made of Tarth. Arms that were simultaneously strong and gentle. Gentler than Cersei. Brienne called for the guards, called for help for the Kingslayer. Jamie, he thought. My name is Jamie. And that is your synopsis for Jamie 5, A Storm of Swords. An utter deluge of information and emotion as... Wait, sorry, I'm getting something in my ear pierce here. We are only halfway through this chapter? Seven hells. Jamie wakes up on the floor nearby with the not-a-maester Kyborn and not-addressed Brienne standing over him. Kyburn asks if he's being fed, but Jamie can only recall the piss and vomit the bloody mummers had him choked down. Sick or dying or whatever, Jamie has a game of duck-duck-roost tonight, so he needs to be prepared for supper. Brienne offers to dress him, as lovers do, and helps him scrub and shave too. Jamie gets dressed plainly, though Brienne is not so lucky. An ostentatious pink satin dress is given to her, the only lady's clothing that would fit. Brienne may look ridiculous, but Jamie can't stop observing all the fine contours and details of her strong shoulders and thick neck. Instinctually, Jamie felt the need to mock her, but for once in his fucking life, Jamie Lannister holds his tongue. If for no other reason than he's positively sure Brienne could kick his ass right now. Kyburn also offers Jamie a pregame drink so that he'll be buzzing at a socially appropriate level once he sits down for his dinner with Roose Bolton. When the time comes, Brienne helps Jamie across the training yard and into the giant Great Hall of Harrenhal, where some of the grandest moments in Westerosi history have taken place. 
What's about to play out is infinitely more intimate and infinitesimal, but will have shockwaves for the Seven Kingdoms in its own right. Jamie and Brienne make their way to Roose Bolton, sitting alone aside from his not an Arya cupbearer. And how fun would that scene be, though? <laughs> Roose, stealing lines from Podrick Payne, greets them as Sir, my lady, and offers them a seat and hors d'oeuvres. He also offers them some shitty wine. Jamie chooses the red because Lannisters understand branding. Brienne chooses water instead, and Roose Bolton sips on his drink of choice, Hippocrass. Drink orders out of the way, Jamie wants to get down to business, vocally moving past Roose Bolton's offer of prunes and poops. He wants to know what the Lord of the Dreadfort has planned for him. Regarding you? You are a perilous prize, sir. You sow dissension wherever you go. Even here, in my happy house of Harrenhal. And in Riverrun as well, it seems. Do you know, Edmure Tully has offered a thousand golden dragons for your recapture? Jamie's unimpressed. His sister would offer ten times as much. Bolton quickly clarifies that there are other offers on the table, too. Lord Karstark has offered his daughter for Jamie's head, and though Roos doesn't tell Jamie about the state of Lord Karstark's head. Either way, no need to worry about the Karstarks. He sent them off with Galbert Glover to Duskendale. Wait, Duskendale? Wasn't Rob just confounded by his men being there? Hmm. And, well, Roos doesn't need the daughter of Karstark as bride, either. He got hitched to the Lady Walda Frey while at the Twins. No, not that one, the fat one. Walder Frey had promised the bride's weight in silver as dowry, and, well, you get it. I'm starting to think this Roots Bolton guy might not be all that great. Roos is also getting tired of watching Jamie fail at dinner, so he orders the serving boy to break Jamie's bread. Brienne finally speaks up about the rumors that Bolton meant to leave the great castle of Heron to the goat. Bolton confirms. He owes the goat that much, a cursed prize as it is, plus he's got to get back north for the big wedding at the Twins, between Edmure Tully and Rosalind Frey. This comes as a big shock to both Brienne and Jamie. They had no idea the main event of WrestleFrania had been rebooked. Rob had chosen to wrestle with the lower card performer, a Westerling of the Crag, Jane. Jamie may know her. The Westerlings were wrestling under the Federation led by Tywin McMahon, after all. Jamie gropes for his wine, trying to recall this Jane. His father has numerous bannermen who in turn have many daughters, but the Westerlings aren't really notable. An old house, sure, a prideful one even, but hardly a powerful one. Brienne is more direct in her reaction. You are a liar, Roose Bolton, and Rob is sworn to a fray. She's technically correct, the best kind of correct. Roose Bolton is a liar, but sadly, not about this. And he's not very pleased that she's openly questioning his word either. Brienne should also take Roose Bolton's word that Arya Stark has been found. Yay? And she will be sent north. Great news, right? Well, less so for Elmar Frey, Roose's cupbearer, who was betrothed to her. Lord Walder had to break that one after King Rob's betrayal. Sure is odd how many Freys are hanging around Roose when the Freys deserted Rob's cause, though. Brienne is cautiously optimistic. Now both girls can be returned home for Jaime as per Tyrion Lannister's promise. But that just amused the Lord of Bolton. My lady, has no one told you? Lannister's lie. Jamie chooses this moment to show some bravado, 
picking up the cheese knife to his left and hoping against hope that he doesn't look as weak as he felt. Is that a slight on the honor of my house? A rounded point and dull, but it will go through your eye all the same. You speak boldly for a man who needs help to break his bread. My guards are all around us, I remind you. All around us and half a league away. By the time they reach us, you'll be as dead as Eris. Tis scarcely chivalrous to threaten your host over his own cheese and olives. In the north, we hold the laws of hospitality sacred still. Yeah, sorry. This is me, Manu. Gotta cut in here just to make wet farting noises at Roose Bolton <laughs> invoking the laws of hospitality. Anyway, back to Jamie. I'm a captive here, not a guest. Your goat cut off my hand. If you think some prunes will make me overlook that, you're bloody well mistaken. Perhaps I am. Perhaps I ought to make a wedding gift of you to Edmure Tully, or strike your head off, as your sister did for Eddard Stark. I would not advise it. Casterly Rock has a long memory. A thousand leagues of mountain, sea, and bog lie between my walls and your rock. Lannister enmity means little to Bolton. Lannister friendship can mean much. The game was afoot. Jamie knew this now. Is Brienne aware of what's actually going on? More importantly, is the reader? Roos rebuffs Lannister friendship before offering them some meat. Brienne is unmoved still. Jamie for the Stark sisters, that was the deal. You gotta let us continue to King's Landing to make the trade. Roos, slowly sharpening his rhetorical knives, shoots her down. The raven spoke of escape, not exchange, and that makes you a dirty, filthy traitor, to which, once again, I have to let out a wet fucking fart at Roos Bolton, speaking of treason. Brienne gets to her feet, proclaiming her allegiance to Lady Catelyn, but Roos counters with his oath to the king in the north, or the king who lost the north, whichever it is. That king never wanted to send Jamie back. Jamie, still failing at dinner, has to urge his road trip partner to take a seat. If Bolton wanted them dead, he wouldn't be wasting this feast on them. It is wartime, after all. Lady Brienne, will you sit if I tell you that I hope to send Sir Jamie on, just as you and Lady Stark desire? Brienne was wary, but cautiously pleased. But Roos wasn't done. However, Lord Vargo has created me one small difficulty. Do you know why Hote cut off your hand? It's Vargo fucking Hote. It's just what he does, replies Jamie. The wrapping on his stump was now spotted with blood and wine, and I ever so wonder what that could portend. Roos offers a different answer. Despite being a slobbering barbarian, the goat of Cohor is more cunning than in seeming. Lord Vargo abandoned House Lannister because I offered him Harrenhal, a reward a thousand times greater than any he could hope to have from Lord Tywin. As a stranger to Westeros, he did not know the prize was poisoned. The curse of Heron the Black? Mm, the curse of Tywin Lannister. Our goat should have consulted the Tarbecks or the Reigns. They might have warned him how your lord father deals with betrayal. There are no Tarbecks or Reigns. My point precisely. Lord Vargo doubtless hoped that Lord Stannis would triumph at King's Landing, and thence confirm him in his possession of this castle in gratitude for his small part in the downfall of House Lannister. He knows little of Stannis Baratheon either, I fear. That one might have given him Harrenhal for his service, but he would have given him a noose for his crimes as well. A noose is kinder than what he'll get from my father. By now he has come to that same realization. With Stannis broken and Renly dead, 
Only a stark victory can save him from Lord Tywin's vengeance. But the chances of that grow perishingly slim. King Rob has won every battle. Brienne interjects into the careful dance between Bolton and Lannister. Roos points out that, in spite of that, he's lost much of his bannermen, his keep, his kingdom. Bending the knee would be wise, and Rob Stark could potentially return to the king's peace. But not Vargo Hote. Some pals are too poisoned to do anything with, so they're left out of any peace. The bloody mummers effectively died when Stannis failed at Blackwater Bay. You'll forgive me if I don't mourn. Oh, you have no pity for our wretched doomed goat. Ah, but the gods must. Else why deliver you into his hands? Bolton worked the roast in his teeth. Explaining Hote's real plan was to sell Jamie to the Karstarks and take the young Alice to Bride. But a whole host of dangers lie between the Riverlands and the North. Glovers, Tallhearts, the Mountains Men, the Brotherhood, Wolves on Two Legs and Those on Four, and the Brotherhood Without Banners. So Hote had no choice but to bring Jamie back to Harrenhal, currently overrun with Freys and Boltons. By maiming you, he meant to remove your sword as a threat gain himself a grisly token to send to your father, and diminish your value to me. For he is my man, as I am King Rob's man. Thus his crime is mine, or may seem so in your father's eyes. And therein lies my small difficulty. Bolton stared at Jamie, his pale eyes unblinking, expectant, chill. And in that moment, Jamie understood. You want me to absolve you of blame, to tell my father that the stump is no work of yours. <laughs> my lord, send me to Circe and I'll sing as sweet a song as you could want of how gently you treated me. Had I had a hand, I'd write it out, how I was maimed by the sellsword my own father brought to Westeros and saved by the noble Lord Bolton. I will trust to your word, sir. Jamie starts picking at the wax in his ears because surely he misheard. Trust? Me? And addressed as Sir to boot? Seven hells, this really is a brave new world for Jamie Lannister. With the why answered, albeit in subtext, the how comes next. Once Kyburn deems Jamie fit for travel, Bolton's man Steelshanks will, will lead him back to King's Landing. In exchange for Lady Catelyn's daughters, though, right? asked Brienne. Right? Bolton is utterly uninterested with the question. The men are talking. Don't you worry yourself about it. Anyway, Sansa Stark is now hitched to Tyrion, so an exchange is out of the question. Brienne is baffled, as is Jaime, but he hides it better. Sansa Stark should make his brother happy, just like that crofter's daughter did many years ago. What's that, Jaime? Care to say more? But it's Roos Bolton, the leech lord of the Dreadfort, who punctuates this chapter by plunging a metaphorical dagger into Brienne's heart. What the imp did or did not swear scarcely matters now, least of all to you. Sir Jamie will continue on to King's Landing. I said nothing about you, I fear. It would be unconscionable of me to deprive Lord Vargo of both his prizes. Were I you, my lady, I should worry less about Starks and rather more about sapphires. And that is your synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 5. Whew! Despite how this chapter started, I feel like I need a bath. What'd you think, poor Bolton of the Dreadfort? <laughs> well, this is one another one of those chapters where I think everyone remembers the first time they read it. 
It's a before and after moment, where the story can never be the same again. If you were recommending A Song of Ice and Fire to anyone, this is one of the parts you'd want to use to sell it, but you would never want to spoil it. It's one of the defining chapters of the story, and it's all the more impressive given that, purely in terms of the plot, nothing really happens in it. It's not about the plot, it's about character. George has gradually hinted at something complicated going on with Jamie beneath the surface, but the bathtub scene with Brienne is where he shows his hand. So the dramatic arc of the chapter belongs to the reader. We're the ones changing, as we realize how little we understood this man. We have to reevaluate him, just like Brienne does. And that's only half the chapter. The Roose Bolton scene is so well written it would have made for a top shelf chapter all on its own. It's just an embarrassment of riches here, as the god-tier middle stretch of Storm of Swords rolls on like a runaway train toward the Red Wedding. It's been a big double header here for us not-a-cast boys. Mm-hmm. Last time it was Davos, Emmett's favorite, and now we're on to Jamie, my favorite. This is the seminal Jamie Lannister chapter, the one that not only unravels his character, but also sheds light on one of the defining moments in Westerosi history, the murder of the Mad King Eris. Like the Davos chapter before it, everything takes place on a small scale in the confines of one castle, a conversation in a bathtub, and one at a dinner table. But metaphorically, the table is flipped and the bathwater thrown out. Jamie Lannister in George's pitch letter was the big bad of the story, aside from the others. But here, by just his fifth point of view chapter, George has found something infinitely more interesting for the Kingslayer, who reveals himself to be more heroic than we first thought, as well as more cunning in the Game of Thrones. The juxtaposition of the two set pieces is intentional. In the bath, Jamie puts the truth out in the open. No rhetorical two-step or tact or even metaphor like, say, the Night of the Laughing Tree story from Mira. But his dinner with Roos has all the meaning and politic unsaid, danced around, hinted at, lest Brienne, or the reader, gets tipped off as to what's to come. Someone once said there's a beast beneath the boards, and that perfectly describes this chapter. Jamie 5 opens up in a bathtub, and you best believe I am kicking myself for burning my spirited away metaphor on Davos 4 when this chapter takes place in a bathhouse, and Jamie <laughs> even gets a spiritual cleansing like the river spirit. Ah, well, I guess the main takeaway is to go see Spirited Away, one of my favorite movies. Endorsed, seconded, damn straight. <laughs> but the setting is immediately evocative. Dim, steamy, warm baths, and even a naked woman. You could trick yourself into expecting a sex scene next. Maybe that is what this is. An incredibly intimate moment for both characters, the most intimate moment for Jamie Lannister. John and Egret a little bit ago went more traditional sexy time in their bath, but here Jamie and Brienne are about to have spiritual coitus, a release of resentment and truth that can only be shared in private moments. Spiritual coitus is my favorite Marvin Gaye album, <laughs> number one. And yeah, part of why this chapter has such an impact is because it, it creeps up on you. It doesn't announce itself as important. Some chapters you read and right away you know, okay, this is a big deal. Like that first Sam chapter, where you get the cliffhanger of the prologue with the White Walkers showing up, and then suddenly Sam's a POV, and you go, oh, okay, we're finding out what happened. But this one? It starts on such a small scale. We don't even get like an establishing shot of Hall. The chapter starts in the bathhouse, which feels all the more cramped when Jamie slides into the same tub as Brienne, despite having so many other options. Only gradually does the reader realize that this chapter is a big fucking deal, as it opens up to encompass what was almost an atrocity on an unimaginable scale. 
So you go, okay, bathtub, Jamie's being a dick, yada, yada, yada. Wait, what? Wait, what? You sit straight up in your chair. It's a slow burn, you know, unlike the wildfire. George writes it that way not only to pull the rug out from under the audience, but to establish the intimacy, like you said. This all happens in the context of Jamie and Brienne's relationship, which basically got a soft reboot when they were captured by the Bloody Mummers and Jamie lost his hand. Not that the previous tensions have vanished, but they've passed through a filter. They mean something different now, changing as the characters change. And the bath isn't just meant to give the scene a romantic flourish. The water represents cleansing, a confession and baptism and unburdening all in one go, washing away like the thick layers of dirt accumulated on the road. If nothing else, it's a truth, scrubbed from all public perceptions of context of Westerosi chivalry. And just like with the previous Davos chapter, there is a motif of water as an anecdote to fire, which gave Davos strength. Jamie Lannister has been kissed by fire in his own, twisted way, and it's branded him, leaving him a deeply cynical, arrogant man inside and out. Water puts out the fire, snuffs out the memory of the Mad King heiress, burning like a glass candle inside him for these past 20 years. Fire consumes, as Beric says, and water connects. Ice preserves, as Maester Aemon says, but in its liquid state, water is usually more of a symbol of change, eroding the borders between Jamie and Brienne. It's a liminal space, relaxing Jamie's muscles and loosening up his tongue. The bathtub here is like a baptismal font. It's a vessel for rebirth. And yeah, I love that George includes the detail of the water darkening as Jamie bathes. All the dirt he's scrubbing off stands in for his accumulated sins. And also for the layers he's created around himself. The persona of the Kingslayer that is starting to implode. We're going beneath the surface, literally and otherwise. Brienne plays a complicated, if understated, role in all this. In The Dinner with Ruth, she stands in as the reader, which we will talk about soon enough. She does play a similar role in The Tub with Jamie. She is there to absorb this incredibly consequential lore and character dump that shifts our own perception of events. But there really is no other character Jamie Lannister can admit this to with the same effect. I honestly don't think Cersei would really care at all. Tyrion would care insofar that his brother was torn up about it. Brienne's experience intersects with Jamie. Granted, Jamie is not oppressed along gender lines, but the same institutions and contradictions that drive chivalry hamper both. It's the same system that makes people snicker behind their backs, and that's before we even get to the shared history the two have had on the road, and how both are labeled kingslayers, however inaccurately. But I think in part, Jamie can only confess this to Brienne because she is virtuous, without sin, someone who as well as anyone holds up the platonic ideal of knighthood. I warily and loosely use the word absolution here, and I'm going to sidestep talking about redemption arcs, but Brienne's absolution, or at the very least understanding, is more meaningful than the same from Tyrion or Cersei would be to Jamie, precisely because Brienne isn't depraved like them. She's as close to the image of the warrior as they come. Brienne will be a knight errant in A Feast for Crow and Beyond, and a Quixotian quest for Stark girls that will only lead her back to Jamie. These two, plus Sandra Clegane, are at the heart of George's interrogation of knighthood, and Jamie's confession here will be as important to Brienne's journey as it is to his own. And Jamie hangs a lampshade on the unlikeliness of this moment when he wonders to himself, why am I telling this absurd, ugly child? This is what makes Jamie such a difficult but also rewarding character. It's not just that his POV provides us access to his thoughts, which we didn't have before. 
It's that those thoughts frequently contradict each other, as well as contradicting his words and actions. The defense mechanisms he's created over the years are so effective that he doesn't even recognize them from the inside anymore. It reminds me of those, those teenagers in The Simpsons who see uh, Homer come on the festival stage and one of them go, oh yeah, he's cool. And the other one says, are you being sarcastic, dude? And the first one says, I don't even know anymore. That's Jamie. <laughs> Losing his hand has ramped up those mechanisms, but also exposed them for the performances they are. Look at how Jamie deals with his newfound vulnerability. He needs a serving man's help to even get out of his clothes. And he covers up that weakness by calling the man scum, unworthy of staring at Brienne's rack. Presumably that's okay for Jamie to do. Jamie wields class and gender as weapons. It's a way of telling himself that, as a highborn male, he can keep himself out of remove from peasants and or women. But now he's lost his sword hand, the method by which those hierarchies are enforced. Jamie is absolutely terrified of intimacy and vulnerability. Not only because the secrets he has kept are so volatile, but also because the masculine warrior culture in which he was raised tells him that strength is the only way to deal with those secrets and the pain of keeping them. Like you said, it's Brienne's relationship to that same culture which makes her the perfect audience for Jamie's story. On one hand, she believes in the values of chivalry and condemns Jamie for violating them. But like you said, she also stands outside that system, which I think gives her more credibility in Jamie's eyes. Even though he, he kind of snaps back at her, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't get his back up in the same way he did about Ned judging him for sitting on the Iron Throne. He's more just freaked out by the realization he might have more in common with Brienne than with anyone else he knows. So he has to ward that off with lines like, absurd, ugly child. Okay, if that's the case, then why are you telling her your big secret? Why do you care what she thinks of you? The reader's in the position of Brienne, having to see through the chinks in Jamie's armor to the hurting soul he is trying so desperately hard to keep hidden. Like the reader, it takes a hot minute for Brienne to warm up to Jamie. She doesn't want Jamie in her tub at first, and then they debate the merits of Jamie drowning in that tub. She keeps her back to him as he waves his stump at her, his crimes, in her face, before finally throwing down her failure to protect Renly, which gets her to turn around, lay herself bare in front of him. Jamie, no matter how negatively he describes Brienne, is aroused by her. He blames it on his lack of Cersei, but you know, we know. Mm -hmm. The first hint that something may bubble up out of Jamie is what he does next. He apologizes. Wait, Jamie saying sorry? He can't quite do it like a decent person. He mumbles through it and still calls her a wench. <laughs> Naturally, Brienne doesn't take it in good faith, because why should she? And Jamie gets immediately annoyed that he can't even get that far with her. And this is where George starts explicitly teasing us with the possibility of romance between Jamie and Brienne. It was subtext during their duel, which was a sublimated sex scene, as I said when we covered it. And now it reaches the text. Jamie easily gets naked in front of Brienne. Because, like he says, there's nothing she hasn't seen. They already experienced enforced intimacy during their death march to Harrenhal with the Bloody Mummers. But Brienne still covers up. Jamie thinks that's ridiculous because he doesn't see Brienne as attractive. Her breasts are tiny, he thinks, and she's got bruises all over. She doesn't look like Cersei, the standard of beauty, the only woman I've ever been with. What does she have to hide? Why else would she cover up other than because I'm looking? He can only think of Brienne's body in terms of his own gaze. He's literally stuck in his own POV. <laughs> what Jamie doesn't realize is that Brienne hates her own body. George lets us know that right away in this chapter, as Brienne is, quote, scrubbing her arm almost angrily. When Jamie says that she'll scrub the skin off, he's more right than he knows. 
She wants to erase herself and start over, something they have in common, although for different reasons. Jamie thinks that his left hand is good for nothing, and immediately lashes out at Brienne, saying she should be glad he lost his right hand. That's the hand he did all the sinning with, that's the hand he broke all, the, he broke all his oaths with. Where he really crosses the line is when he blames her for his missing hand, saying it's no surprise Renly died with Brienne guarding him. The reader knows what a cruel statement that is, not only because Brienne loved Renly, but because there was no practical way she could have saved him from Stannis' shadow, because... You know, it's a shadow. <laughs> Jamie's just looking for a wound to poke at. It's so insulting that she starts climbing out of the tub. And so Jamie sees her body. Turns out he's into it. And that freaks him out further. <laughs> it's fascinating how the sexual dynamic here is filtered through the question of knighthood. The question in both cases being what kind of body you have. Is it the right kind of body? Jamie's erection is what pricks his conscience, so to speak. He admits that, yeah, he's just bitter about losing his hand, and he knows Brienne isn't at fault. She defended him as well as any man, as well as any knight, could. Even though Jamie is the literal knight here, he is now in the position of the helpless maiden, and Brienne is the one who has to guard him. She's the knight, which George emphasizes here by having Jamie call her thick as a castle wall, exactly how Dunk is described. Dunk might be Brienne's ancestor. Regardless, she ends up bearing his sigil on her shield. In A Feast for Crows, Brienne confesses to the elder brother on the Quiet Isle that she feels in between when it comes to gender. She could never be either the son or the daughter that her father wanted. While that's caused her a lot of pain in the context of a society that refuses to accept her as she is, you can see George building the argument that it's precisely this in-between place that allows Jamie and Brienne to reach out to each other. They can kind of both be in that place together, assuming they can get past all the baggage, which is not easy. Yeah, that Kingslayer baggage, that reputation that follows Jamie around. Kingslayer, Oathbreaker, Man Without Honor. We can all hear Nikolai Kosterwaldau saying those lines. Mm-hmm. Fuck the king, Jamie thinks. Especially Eris. But especially Robert. <laughs> that he fought a war for love is a bedtime story. The happy tale that everyone tells themselves to give legitimacy to the now. The real story is far more complex, though Jamie's not far off and Robert himself being motivated by a pretty face. But it's Brienne saying Robert wrote to save the realm that triggers Jamie into the iconic revelations to come. Jamie's PTSD for that fateful day in King's Landing seemed to first show in Jamie 4 when news of Tyrion's wildfire gambit reached his ears from Kyburn's lips. Back then, he joked that he dreamed the stream before, but had no one to share the joke with. But here and now, he's going to share it with Brienne, though the leechings and fevers and poisons and heat make it all come unbidden. His unspoken barbs for Brienne accompany the start of his story, but fade away as Jamie himself fades away into memory, memory, and horror. I love how George manages the transition here. Even though Jamie is about to explain exactly why Eris cannot be trusted to remain in power, he doesn't frame Robert's rebellion as a righteous response. Jamie goes so far as to say his regret isn't killing his king, it's that in doing so, he contributed to Robert's rise to the throne. That's not to say that Robert was as bad as Eris. Remember, he basically makes Ned say that on his deathbed. It's more that Robert failed to actually be the hero he appeared to be. Brienne sticks to the story, the bedtime story, like you said. Robert was a hero. He rode for true love and to save the realm from the wicked mad king. Jamie uh, reframes that narrative. No, Robert plunged the realm into civil war, and he did it for, quote, pride and a cunt and a pretty face. 
While I think Robert didn't really have much of a practical choice but to rebel after Eris demanded his head, there's no denying how central his ego was to the whole thing. And I think Jamie is 100% correct that Robert was more infatuated with Lyanna from afar than he was truly, deeply, madly in love. Ned had a point when he said Robert loved the image of her. The person was a stranger to him. Robert was driven by childish ideas of who he should be, how his life should go. And then adulthood caught up with him. Same thing happened to Jamie, and it's happening now to Brienne. The stories they grew up with lied to them about how the world works. And yeah, Jamie brings up the wildfire in the context of the Blackwater. We talked about Tyrion Targaryen last time around. Within Jamie's story, it matters that his brother unleashed the wildfire because it suggests that his family has been poisoned by it too. We'll see this again with Cersei when she gets really into the wildfire. The call is coming from inside the house. Jamie can't escape the fire because it's being rekindled by the people he loves most in the world. I am not myself, he thinks to himself as he begins telling the story, because he has built his identity around keeping this story inside. He's gotten so used to living with it. I think anyone who's kept a secret for years knows how this goes. It becomes just this, this dull throb in the back of your mind. You're always aware of it, but you're never really consciously thinking of it. To say it out loud is so unsettling it makes Jamie feel like a different person entirely. But it's by telling this story that he reclaims his identity. Jamie. My name is Jamie. And that's how his story begins. By telling Brienne that he wore gold armor that day, not the white. Lannister, not Kingsguard. That's who I was that day. The mask I wore when I became the man I am now. Wildfire burns on water, Jamie says, like the water they're in right now. He can't escape it. The past is becoming the present. As he begins, George writes that Jamie is floating in heat, in memory, like the heat of the water is summoning the wildfire. It's incredibly vivid and dreamlike prose, drawing you into Jamie's story like you're being hypnotized. You feel that heat. Jamie speaks to the political reality after John Connington lost to Robert at the Stony Sept. From then on, the rebellion had to be taken seriously, and Eris, in all his fraught paranoia, thanks in part to Varys, also mistrusted everyone around him. Anyone in his sphere of influence who could be used as a hostage would be used as a hostage, be it the Martells or Jaime himself. This is the most time we spend with Aerys Targaryen, second of his name, known to his enemies as the Mad King. It's not like we're new to this guy. We've heard quite a bit about him, his actions, his personality. He hangs over the story, a potent and poisonous ghost. He's the villain by which every other one in the story is measured. He set the standard. One of the big structural ideas of A Song of Ice and Fire is that the most obvious monster of them all died over a decade before the story took place. We're seeing the aftermath of saving the realm from a Dark Lord. That allows George to keep Aerys at a distance at first, gradually revealing more every time he comes up. It's like a camera slowly zooming in on something too horrible to look at right away. What really makes this so effective is that the first-time reader probably doesn't think of Eris as a big mystery at this point. Eh, we get the idea. He's a crazy guy doing crazy things. No one could stop him because he was in charge, until he finally went too far and a bunch of lords got together to overthrow him. We've seen this guy before, especially if we've read a bunch of fantasy stories. We can fill in the gaps. Who needs the details? Well, that's exactly what Catelyn thought when she was talking to Jaime about the Mad King back in Clash of Kings. She thought, I do not need to hear this. And then he told her what really happened to Rickard and Brandon Stark. That made it different. She did need to hear that. And it's even more true here. 
as Jamie breaks down the last days of Robert's Rebellion. It's important to think about this as a story, almost like a confession. It's different than if Jamie was just thinking it. There's a structure to it. There's an argument being constructed about how their world works, how Jamie responded to it, and how both of those things have been distorted by stories settling into conventional wisdom over time. Jamie starts with John Connington's defeat at Stony Sept, the battle we heard about in Arya's chapters. Why start there? Because, as Jamie says, that's when Aerys first realized he might lose the war. That's what led him to the idea of taking the city down with him. Even though Aerys had already set people on fire, it's the bitterness of potential defeat that caused him to consider ramping up the scale of his atrocities. Next, Jamie talks about Lewin Martell, John Derry, and Barristan Selmy. Well, why them? What do they all have in common? They were his fellow Kingsguard, his sworn brothers, every one of them older and more experienced than he was. And they all left him alone with the Mad King. Same with the other White Knights, Arthur Dane, Oswell Went, and their Lord Commander Gerald Hightower. All of them were off with Rhaegar, and Rhaegar is who Jamie mentions next. It's a common theme. The more capable government officials all enabled Eris as he descended. The last time Jamie saw Rhaegar, the prince acknowledged that he had abandoned his responsibilities. When this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but... Well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. <laughs> that Ned Stark line to John from the show, we shall talk when I return. Never say that. Never say that out loud. This is the narrative as it unfolded from Jamie's POV. Watching everyone in between him and the decision to kill his king walk away from the problem. They all passed the buck. They all kicked the can down to him. To be fair, Eris would never have permitted Jamie to be sent away on his own mission. Like you said, he was a hostage against his father's good behavior, just like Elia was for the Martells. He was he was sucking them all in, drawing them all in closer to him with like with the with the city as a whole. But the dominant tone here is paranoia. Eris's paranoia infected the court because everyone had to walk on eggshells, careful of what they said. Varys was always listening. While he still has a fearsome rep in the present day, you get the sense it really doesn't compare to when he ran the Red Keep from top to bottom, the blood raven of his day. All it took was one wrong word, one whisper in the wrong ear, and you were condemned to burn. Tyranny is corrosive to trust. The prisoner's dilemma is always at work, in that you stand to gain more from turning on each other than working together. The omnipresent threat of violence from Eris, the fact that no one was willing to get in his way, was a hellish experience. Mm -hmm even before the Mad King tried to create a literal hell on Earth. What Eris did trust was fire. His eyes and those of his pyromancers would gleam with malice as they planned where to place the substance. As Robert victoried through the countryside, Eris's pyromancers came and went, and his hand, Lord Carlton Chested, eventually took notice. The way Jamie describes him reminds me a lot of our good friend Lord Beesbury from House of the Dragon and The Dance of Dragons as told in Fire and Blood. The seemingly mild-mannered Lord finds courage deep inside to call out tyranny and refuses to play a part, only for that person to be summarily killed, be it by Kristen Cole or by Wildfire. The pyromancer Rosert became Hand next, the very man who burned Ned Stark's dad. I love the detail that Jamie just remembers the dude's name out of nowhere. First, he just says the Mason dagger hand, and he's like, oh, right, Chelsted. That was it. Carlton Chelsted. <laughs> Jamie thinks it came back with the telling. The act of telling the story drags it into the light. As Jamie goes along, he remembers more and more, like he's excavating a corpse. That's what makes this scene so cathartic for him. 
He's getting the poison out. He can only do it by looking at it directly. It's painful, but it's necessary. And that little episode with Lord Chelstead is very revealing. The question running through Jamie's story is, how did it ever get this bad? How did we get to the point where Jamie, probably the least powerful person caught up in all this, had to be the one to put a stop to it? Rhaegar was busy raising an army, he says, and the Queen's eyes had been closed for years. We don't know much about Queen Rhaella, other than that she was repeatedly raped by Eris after his little wildfire parties. I think it's fair to guess that she was so traumatized by that, so isolated from everyone else, and so distraught at what had become of the husband she used to love, that she went away inside, as Jamie would put it. But I think Rhaegar wasn't just busy. His eyes were closed as well. He believed he was doing the right thing, the necessary thing to save the world from the White Walkers, but in the process, he was empowering his demonstrably unfit father. And you can't pull that off without some massive cognitive dissonance. Rhaegar just probably told himself it wasn't happening. So for reasons ranging from the personal to the political to the prophetic, no one had an interest in acknowledging the horrifying truth. We are all the hostages of a madman who would rather see us dead than free of him. And that's reality for a lot of people, whether the danger comes from a political leader or from a tyrannical parent like Craster. What do you do in that situation? George gives us a little case study with Lord Chelsted. Jamie thought he was just another crony, someone too craven to challenge power. He would knuckle under to the very end. But Chelsted turned out to be made of stronger stuff than that. He realized what was happening, he tried to talk Eris out of it, and when that didn't work, he quit on the spot. On one hand, that seems like all the right moves. On the other hand, what was the actual practical effect of that? Eris just shrugged, burned Chelsted alive, made Rossard his new hand, and carried on. Much as Chelsted suffered for his stand, there's something naive and almost selfish about how he handled it. He didn't take any steps to actually change what was happening, only to remove himself from responsibility. In other words, he didn't do what Jamie did. So even the most well-meaning members of the Mad King's court left Jamie alone with him. That's the big motif here. Quitting in protest is not enough to stop injustice. You do actually eventually have to take action. And that is precisely what everyone hates Jamie for. As you mentioned, Eris was very liberal with using his hostages as leverage. Jamie was kept close to the king, and thus privy to all his scheming, which was a check against his father at Casterly Rock. Alia Martell and her children were held against Dorne because Eris presumed Jamie's brother Lewin Martell had betrayed Rhaegar at the Trident. Eris had no allies, just people he could threaten to keep in line. But fire was his ultimate plan, though as Jamie explains, Eris did not believe it would be his ultimate end. Eris would bathe in wildfire if he could, circling back to the bathtub imagery here, and in the great fire of King's Landing, Eris meant to be reborn as a dragon as everyone else was reduced to ash and bone. It's absolutely deranged and vile, but can't be divorced from a long history of Targaryens thinking themselves more like dragons and gods than like men. It invokes notions of reincarnation, being born again as your true essence, though Eris's dream may be a more explicit resurrection and transformation than reincarnation than in the minds of Hindus and Buddhists. And while it is a pretty despotic plan, I do want to point out that in our real-world history, 
burning down your own towns and fortresses has been used as a revolutionary tactic, um, like, say, Toussaint Louverture in the Haitian revolutions, uh, when the French grew upset with the Haitians for, you know, rebelling and starting their own country. Um, the French that were sent back were basically sent and were tried to uh, reinvoke the plantation systems and to prevent that and pr- to prevent the people of Haiti from being re-enslaved. Uh, if a city was going to be lost, uh, Louverture argued that just burn it down so they can't enslave us again. So it is interesting to see that something that we would kind of assume to be just a vile tactic through and through, almost going scorched earth with your own kingdom, has been used as a revolutionary tactic that in no way has anything to do with this situation, but I felt a little history would be nice here. No, I think that's great because it it, it puts our focus where it should be, which is on why Eris was doing this and how little he thought about the people involved at all. And that that's that's really... That's the kind of the, the skin crawling aspect of it when you're kind of put into his head and realize how he's looking at things. This is where George pulls the rug out from under the audience as we go from political paranoia to an outright horror story. And the wildfire is what makes the difference there. That layer of magic and mysticism that builds on political tensions rather than erasing them, which is what George has always said about magic. He doesn't like he doesn't like it as a as a as a tool for lazy storytellers who can just have wizards, you know, wave their hands and armies vanish, as he said, like, well, you would never even get an army together if that was a <laughs> thing in your world. It works much better here when it's kind of it's built into this political situation rather than just kind of rendering it moot. As bad as Eris's mental state had gotten, there were limits to how much damage he could cause on his own. He could hurt his wife, and he did so horribly, but that was about it. He wasn't like Magor the Cruel, a physically fit man who could just jump on his dragon and go burn a bunch of people all by himself. The Mad King needed other people to carry out his plans, and the true horror of this story is that they did. That's what Jamie lingers on here. That's what stood out to him at the time and haunts him to this day. It's not just that Ares gave the order to plant the pre-modern equivalent of a nuclear bomb underneath King's Landing. It's that there were a handful of men willing to do it, just enough to get it done, as Jamie recalls. The intrusive vision that Jamie experiences as he tells this story, the image that sticks out the most to him in memory, it's not even of Ares himself. It's Rosser, chief pyromancer, his eyes shining as he told the king how they could incinerate half a million people including Rossard himself. (laughs) Imagine the time it takes to make that plan. Imagine the dry logistical details that go into it. You got to think about how big each explosion is going to be. You got to think about where they can be positioned to cause the most damage, how how you're going to keep it all secret. And that's something that always haunts me when I read about history and politics, that even the most insane, hideous plans require two plus two to equal four. In order to pull off a massacre of this scale, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be intelligent. And so the sad reality is that intelligence and competence and experience are not barriers to monstrosity. This wasn't a snap decision. It wasn't an impulse. Maybe it was for Eris, but not for the pyromancers. Rossard had to make all these rational choices to even make this possible. And he did it anyway, guaranteeing his own death because there was some part of him that loved it. That side of him is what's shining through his eyes, the death drive, an irreducible psychological compulsion to seek your own destruction. Eris, as Jamie says, genuinely thought he could transform himself via the fire. And like I said, yeah, that's, that's the ultimate Targaryen dragon dream right there, cutting right through the metaphor, no, I'm going to literally be a dragon. Mm-hmm. It's an idea rooted in mythology and philosophy. Carl Jung, as much as Tolkien, 
And uh, Eris's particular personality also, as many people have pointed out, has has the kind of the echo of Hitler and the bunker mentality, that kind of crumbling delusional tyrant. Mm-hmm. Only what if he had wildfire? Only what if he had a nuke down there? <laughs> and running through all of it, I think, is this idea that humans are functionally animals. We're functionally beasts who are just smart enough to try and become gods, but not smart enough to get there. So many elements come together to produce Eris's dream. You got Targaryen symbolism, you got Valyrian blood, you got the example of Aryan bright flame, and of course you have Eris's own particular mental illness. Above all, I think what convinces Eris that he can be a dragon is that the Targaryens had dragons. Once. That's what made them special. That's what made them kings, as Daemon says in House of the Dragon. Then they turned inward on themselves, destroying that source of power from within. And they've been trying to get it back ever since. So here at the end, the last Targaryen monarch is convinced that the dream has to come true. The bill has to come due. The story has to be real. It can't be that I'm actually presiding over the downfall of my house. We survived the doom. We were never supposed to fall. We're only supposed to fly. Eris was motivated not only by paranoia, but by pride. He was furious that his enemies had not only defied him, but had done so successfully prepared to drag him down and humiliate him, just like at Duskendale. The Emperor once more had no clothes, and wasn't taking it well. So he was prepared to deny Robert his happy ending, at the cost of half a million lives. Like I was saying, it's it's this skin-crawling expression of how little his people meant to him. The small folk who only want to be left alone when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, but they never will, because the game board is their land, their homes, their bodies, and their children. If I can't have Westeros, nobody can. It's the logic of an abuser writ large. The Targaryens built this city, a tribute to their kingdom, and the last Targaryen king wanted to take it all with him on the way out. There was only forest and fish when we got here. We will leave it as charred bones and cooked meat, a feast for crows. Robert won't get a kingdom out of me, only the ashes of one. But Rossart and the other pyromancers They weren't even losing a kingdom. And there was not even a delusional hope of resurrection for them. That's You never see that mention that they were going to be like little baby dragons helping out the big dragon like it's Totoro. No mention of that. No, for them it was a death cult, nothing more. And they went along with it anyway. And in a way, isn't that even worse than Eris himself? And that, George is arguing, is what really underlies all the complex structures we tie together and call a civilization. This desire to watch the world burn. So that gets us to the Day of Reckoning. Eris inexplicably ignored Varys in favor of Pycelle, and Tywin Lannister sacked the city. The sack itself is backgrounded here. The personal revelations about Eris and catharsis for Jaime are center stage. But the sack could be instructive looking forward to Winds and Beyond. It's possible King's Landing faces another sack, be it from Daenerys or Young Grift or whoever. We know John Connington is skewing Tywinish in his strategies, just something George wants us to keep in mind for the future. Jamie, through the course of all this, is ordered by Eris to bring him his father's head and looks to start his great bonfire of the capital, or in the capital, unsure which preposition to use. But this is where Jamie Lannister becomes, or unbecomes himself, depending on your point of view. He kills Rosert, he kills Eris, and he kills the other pyromances for good measure, saving the population of King's Landing and murdering his king and reputation in the process. 
not only the most heroic act by the numbers of Jamie's life, but more heroic than most any deed we've seen by anyone at this point. He'd go on to be reviled for this act, his glory is his shame in everyone else's eyes. The previous chapter, Davos 4, this one, and the next chapter, Tyrion 5, act as a three-act telling of the fall of the Mad King Eris. With Davos and Stannis, we dove into the conditions driving the rebellion, who to declare for, and Robert's victories prior to the Trident. Here, we actually get the thing, the death of Eris, and next time we will have Oberyn and Tyrion speaking to what happened after Eris's death when Tywin's men entered the Red Keep. It's an efficient and elegant way to give us the story without having one character relay all of it, and each act of this tale speaks directly to a character's pathos. Stannis and his sense of duty and loyalty, Jaime and his complicated relationship with his vows, and Oberyn with the death of his sister and her children. The biggest political event of the last 20 years distilled into three extremely personal tellings of it. And this little retelling also acts as a mid-book overture to what Storm of Swords is itself. The peak of this book is the fall of the king, or kings, Rob and Joffrey. The first part of the book is very much setting up that act that leads to their fall, and afterwards as well, the afterwards, the fallout of the death of those kings. A lot of which we explore in in A Feast for Crows. But yeah, no, that's great. That's such a great way of looking at it. This, this structure of all these chapters together, just getting these fragments of what happened. And it's, it's all filtered through. None of the characters telling that story are doing so just to be like a, like an NPC in a video game. Like, here's the explanation of what happened. They're all telling that story for their own reasons. They got different things out of it at the time. They're getting different things out of it now. And that makes all the difference. This is an argument George makes in both A Song of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood in different ways. There is no neutral aesthetic. There is no such thing as an objectively true history, in part because power dynamics always get in the way, winners write the history books, but also because we are all locked into our own perspective on events. We don't get a detached God's eye read on the downfall of the Mad King. We get bits and pieces isolated as part of different people's stories, and how they tell those stories reveals their souls. Story structure is everything. You can't separate form and content, because form is content. The medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said. My favorite example of that here comes right at the end of Jamie's story. Look at how he describes what happened. He killed Rossart, then Eris, then the other pyromancers. The way he frames it, the Kingslang itself, isn't even the focus. The focus is on killing all of them, as a group. The way everyone else tells this story, it's all about killing Eris because they assume that's what Jaime was focused on, overthrowing the regime on behalf of his father, regardless of the oath-breaking involved. Yeah, honestly, I forget how quickly Jaime gets to and then just blows past the killing of Eris. It's just a part of a bigger story. The show probably colors my memory there, as Nikolai Kosterwalto does speak a bit more length about Eris himself, and the script bundles a lot of the Eris stuff together at that moment. But yeah, he's just like, yeah, and I killed Eris, but then I also did these seven other things, and he barely even registers. For Jamie, killing the pyromancers was equally important, because they could have set off the bomb even without Eris. And that, co- that communicates to us that for Jamie, it wasn't about taking the throne. It wasn't about the throne at all. It was about saving lives. And that is so powerful. It makes us completely rethink these events and rethink how we've been told this story. The pyromancers don't even stand out as important to anyone else. Anyone else would be like, oh, the guys who helped Eris? Yeah, whatever. Sure, they were there. They were important only to Jamie, and now to us. We didn't understand Jamie because we didn't know his story. We assumed we did, but we were wrong, just like Ned and Catelyn and everyone else. 
And so now, we're left with the same question he is. Who is Jamie Lannister? How do we reconcile all of this? How should we feel about him and the empty space where his hand used to be? I guess I can be the one to get into those Jamie Lannister questions. <laughs> yes, sir. I am a Jamie Lannister sicko, like my beefish before me, mm-hmm. and Jamie Lannister discourse is its own beast entirely. In the mature 2023 state of the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, age like fine wine, mm-hmm. <laughs> having Jamie as your favorite Aswaf character is a take for the casuals, a bro opinion, which makes some sense since Jeff and I both love cutoff shirts and deadlifts. <laughs> so let's get into it a bit, as despite years of debate about redemption arcs and the use of subversive and how he's basically Shrek's Prince Charming, he still remains my favorite character. In the various twists and turns of the saga, the reveals here about Jamie tend to resonate with broader audiences, an undermining of the fundamental building blocks of the story, that Jamie Lannister is bad, and for all the failings of the Mad King, his murder was ill done. So this chapter is challenging how we conceived one of the story's major characters, its first quote-unquote villain, but also history that we've taken for granted, that's treated as final with no revision, or an account for Mushroom, that challenges the official record. We took the Kingslayer story as a settled matter, only to find the truth to be something entirely different. What else might we be taking for granted, like perhaps with Rhaegar, or Aegon's Conquest, or the Doom of Valyria? Most of all, the accepted story about Jaime Lannister colors how every other character interacts with him, and this in turn has affected how we, the reader, have viewed Jaime some two and a half books into the series. Jaime Lannister, as first presented in the opening chapters of A Game of Thrones, cuts the image of a traditional hero. Tall, handsome, the greatest fighter in the land, shining in golden armor. You can find all sorts of Gary Stu fanfic that has a protagonist cut from the same cloth. Even Jon Snow in his very first chapter can't take his eyes off Jaime. This is what a king should look like, he thinks to himself. I'm not going to give you the blow-by-blow from there. You've read these books. The traditional hero-looking motherfucker reveals himself to be quite ugly, defenestrating Bran, attacking Ned, and just being a jerk 99% of the time. He's not the knight in shining armor. Or rather, he is a knight in shining armor, and that's George's point. He is, as my co-host loves to quote, cruelty and chivalry all jumbled up together. Jamie is part of a larger critique of chivalry and knighthood, a three-pronged attack alongside Sandra Clegane and Brienne. That critique synthesizes in Cat 7, A Clash of Kings, our only time with Jamie in that whole book. I won't repeat his so many vows they make you swear and swear monologue, but that gets to the heart of the contradictory order of things, how each pledge seems to fly against the next. Of course, that little bit of clarity doesn't mean Jamie's cynical, self-centered attitude is the correct one. As Reuben pointed out during Aria 6, Beric and his men were able to distill the jumble of vows into something real and morally admirable. Jamie's speech at the time seemed more theoretical than practical, though, even if he was hinting at cross-purposes between the king and his father. And if it was just that, it would be a hard choosing, basically what Stannis talked about with Aerys and Robert last time out. But people would still think Jamie's kingslaying was practically motivated, choosing his father over his king, who A, just happened to be an awful, insane person, okay, I guess that describes both Aerys and Tywin, (laughs) and B, that the king was about to lose the war. So it still fits the general narrative that Jamie was being practical. But it's the ingredient added here that makes all the difference. 
the wildfire in the stables, in the homes, in the shops of King's Landing. Jamie wasn't choosing between his dad and his sovereign. He was making the choice of one life for half a million. A twist on the one life versus many lives Team Dragonstone just debated with Edric Storm. This time, though, I am happy to take the utilitarian side and support the killing of the Mad King to save the population of King's Landing. It's very deliberate that Jamie was triggered into this retelling by the phrase, save the realm, which is what Robert gets credit for in the songs. Here is Jamie, who actually killed the king that absolutely needed to be killed and explicitly and directly saved hundreds of thousands of lives in a way that Robert only theoretically saved. And for all that, for saving the city and essentially ending the Civil War, Jamie became a pariah while Robert became the hero. Yes, I love that. That's the, that's what that line from Brienne is what gets all this to come out of him. No, I saved the realm. And he has to convince her that, that you know, that's the case. And it's an incredible twist because it changes everything while still being consistent with what we already knew. There's no cheat here. It's a testament to the power of storytelling, how looking through someone else's eyes can change how you feel about them. It's not just that Jamie did a good thing along with the bad things. It's that he did the most heroic thing in the entire story, an act for which he should be celebrated down through the ages, and instead, he was rejected. Now his bitterness and resentment make sense. The empty hypocrisy of his society's values was revealed to him all at once. He had to live on knowing the truth, and clearly it ate away at him over the years. Like Tyrion, he decided to just become the monster they think he is. I think back to my favorite John Ford film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm -hmm. Lee Marvin's Liberty Valance, the scourge of all scourges in Ford's filmography, is supposedly killed by Ransom Stoddard, played by Jimmy Stewart, who uses the killing of the notorious outlaw as a springboard into a successful political career. What we find out near the end is that it wasn't Stoddard who delivered the fatal shot, it was John Wayne's Tom Donovan. All this comes out 25 years after the fact, at Donovan's funeral, giving the film the same flashback structure as this chapter. When Ransom is done retelling the truth, the reporter he spoke to says this iconic line, When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Stoddard had too much to lose if this truth was known, the reporter says, so the fiction endures instead. The film speaks to the relationship between myth and history, and given its placement near the end of Ford's career, between his films and history too. For a generation, John Ford's vision of the Wild West is the one Americans came to know, his legend printed over the fact of the actual frontier. Jamie Five works in similar ways. The legend was printed long ago, for both Robert and Jamie, and even if the fact did become known, it might not be able to push back against two decades of myth-making in Westeros. But also like the film, the application isn't just limited to the narrative, but the genre of the inherent myth-making of medieval fantasy stories. Jamie Lannister's story arc is compelling because it's cutting right through the middle of that, existing at the intersection of myth and history. That is why he is given the visible trappings of the traditional hero. He kind of is. He may be responsible for saving the most lives of anyone we meet in all our time in Westeros, and we learn all this after we see all the actual morally repre reprehensible things he does, namely hurting Bren. I hesitate to use the word subversive when it comes to Jamie. The word I prefer is interrogate. Jamie is part of an interrogation of knighthood, but Jamie is also an avenue into the interrogation of fantasy stories themselves. In this, I find a lot of overlap with him and Sansa and Theon, but I'll save that analysis for those point of views. 
What does it mean to be a hero or a villain or a knight? What does it mean to keep oaths and what does it mean to break them? Arthuriana and children's story derived from them tend to have all these concepts line up neatly, as does a lot of our four quadrants media these last few decades. Even the concept of the anti-hero feels fresh on Jamie's shoulders. The modern-day anti-hero of blockbusters tend to be light on the anti-part and focus more on the hero aspect. George gives both parts of it equal weight in Jamie. The good doesn't wash out the bad, nor the bad the good. And this is why I don't really care about the redemption arc discourse, which itself is a moving target for each individual person and reader. If he apologizes to Bran down the road, is Jamie redeemed? What if he never sees Bran again, but actively does good otherwise? Can we redeem ourselves if we don't offer restitution and penance? What about his attack on Ned? There's no one doing that. Maybe Jamie meets Bran again, and maybe he doesn't. I can imagine both scenarios, honestly. But I don't think Jamie Lannister needs to have a redemption to be a fulfilling character. In fact, I find him more interesting as the mix of chivalry and cruelty and how he synthesizes that. Threatening to trebuchet a baby? That's objectively bad. But using that threat to non-violently win a siege? It's more interesting. Like the gone canon girl Eliana states in her masterpiece (laughs) essay on Daenerys Targaryen, Mm -hmm. the lens of tragedy is more valuable than good guy, bad guy, redemption, etc. To quote a famous historical figure, who we'll just refer to as Anne Bonaparte, no, that's too obvious. How about Napoleon B? (laughs) The hero of a tragedy in order to interest us should be neither wholly guilty or wholly innocent. All weakness and all contradictions are unhappily in the heart of man and present a coloring eminently tragic. I bet that reminds you of George's quote from Faulkner about the human heart in conflict with itself. And that's all distilled into Jamie staring at his stump in the end. The hand that made me the Kingslayer, his glory and the shame. Oh, that's that's all such great stuff. And yeah, I think I think the point is not that this... Uh, cancels out what Jamie did to Bran. Like Jamie did a heroic thing, so he got out of get get out of jail free card and used it on Bran. Like the the point is to turn the interrogation onto ourselves to question whether we really understand what it is we're reading. Because if we don't, then our judgments are meaningless. So maybe we shouldn't be so addicted to our judgments. A point which has aged unfortunately well, <laughs> as a lot of fiction, especially genre fiction, is increasingly seen through the lens of whose side you're on when you read it. And I think, in part, that's a way for people to deal with feelings of helplessness in the, you know, real political realm. But it's also because uncertainty makes people feel uncomfortable. We don't like being reminded how little we really understand what constitutes heroism and villainy. And I think that's such a perfect comparison to Liberty Valance. I think that's that's dead on. And I think the way John Ford approaches the Western is, yeah, it's similar to how George approaches fantasy. That you have the the reverence for the world itself, like George has talked about how much he loves the textures and colors of fantasy. John Ford, obviously in love with, you know, the dust on the plane and the horses and the stables. He just, he shot those so beautifully, had such love for that world. But in both cases, you have the author kind of skeptical about what the values of that world are and what it's supposed to really mean and stand in for. And Ford is is important in that in that way. He's a he's a pivot point in American cinema, away from D.W. Griffith and Birth of a Nation, which is often held up, you know, with many asterisks as like the the beginning of narrative American cinema. It, it used all the tricks we now associate with Hollywood filmmaking in service of truly vile white supremacist propaganda. It retold the story of the Civil War and its aftermath as the la- as the lost cause narrative that has fueled racist ideologies ever since. And the Western was America's great tragic operatic stage where that struggle worked itself out. 
historically as well as cinematically. That is where a lot of ex-Confederates, a lot of where veterans of the Civil War went. Let's take all that violence, that rage, and we'll just unleash it on the frontier to keep America going. And I think no one understood that better than John Ford and his collaborators. And you can see them kind of going on this journey over the course of those Westerns as, as their kind of perspective on the stories changed, as the stories themselves changed. Like you have Stagecoach, the kind of like the... The, the definitive Western that everyone recommends. It's just the, the microcosm of the country. You got like every every type crammed into the stagecoach together. And then you have The Searchers, probably John Ford's most beloved movie with the, the violent anger of, of ex-Confederates like John Wayne in that movie just being taken out on Native Americans. And then finally you get Liberty Valance, which especially come back to it now, it's trying so hard, so self-consciously to be the last Western. Like this is John Ford saying, stop, this is it. <laughs> the story dead ends by revealing itself as a story. A mythology of heroism and righteous violence used as a foundation for political power. And with both John Ford and George, you get this great ambiguity where they condemn the lies and the ignorance, but they also understand that at some level, we really can't help it. We turn everything into narrative because it's the only way we can justify ourselves. And they get that because they're storytellers themselves. They know how the game is played. Yeah, speaking of games and narratives, if you put on any kind of sports center or ESPN coverage, they're talking about athletic events as it has a narrative and heroes and villains in its own right. Every single thing we process through stories. Yep, and, that, and that's why that's why wrestling is so interesting in the context of sports because it takes that that effect and heightens it and makes it deliberately absurd. It makes it kind of the point of the whole thing. But every sport is doing that, just usually in a more sublimated way. I mentioned that Jamie, as an interrogation of fantasy stories, overlaps with Theon and Sansa. And there's another reason those three characters are my favorites. And yeah, for those of you who don't know me, Jamie, Sansa, and Theon are my three favorite point of views. And no, Chloe does not have a gun to my head as I'm including Sansa there. It's because of George's gardening. Thanks to the 92 pitch letter, we know that Jamie and Sansa had much different paths than intended, and Theon was not even mentioned by name. So comparing pitch letter, Kingslaying continues unabated, Jamie Lannister, to the version we actually get is a stunning insight into George's process, how his mind works. In crafting Jamie Lannister, in crafting the characters around him, in crafting this entire cast of characters, he was able to lead Jamie down a different path, away from the big bad, non-other division, and into something fresh and borderline heroic. In the meta, I think there's a spiritual tie between Jamie's bathtub revelations and Ned Stark losing his head. Ned's death was an alarm bell to the reader. This ain't like other stories, don't be so sure what you got yourself into. Jamie's revelation takes that to the next level. Don't even rely on this story in terms of what comes next, because at any point the secure footing you thought you had is like to crumble away. And I bring it back to Ned to close this rant because, well, that's what Jamie Lannister does too. When Brienne finally asks why he hasn't told anyone, the lion's pride shines through. Why bother explaining myself? I was judged guilty the moment Ned Stark opened the doors. And I do think Jamie is kind of right about that. By what right does the wolf judge the lion feels like a perfect summary of the first five Jamie chapters we've had so far, or four and a half maybe. I don't think this line is supposed to say Jamie and Ned are the same or have equal culpability in the way things are. But it's a logical continuation of Brienne and Jamie finding the serving girls hanged with a they laid with lion sign hanging from them. Whereas those Clash Arya chapters really showed us the depravity of the Lannister regime, here in Storm, we are seeing that eventually that depravity comes on all sides, if it wasn't already there from the get-go. 
The Bolton and Karstark subplot speak to it. Ned may be more honorable than Jaime, but in the end, they both propagate the same violent systems. Ned and his men are going to go off from the Red Keep to kill three of the most vaunted and loved members of the Kingsguard at the Tower of Joy right after this, yet very little is made of that compared to Jamie killing the king that everyone knew was bad, mad, and now we the reader know was about to do some major war crimes. Well, Emmett and Nada Cast Limmers, have my Jamie thoughts turned you speechless? Come, curse me or kiss me or call me a liar, something. All three, all three at once. No, you nailed it. It's it's such a difficult knot to untangle, this scene, because it's both overwhelmingly emotional, but also logistically detailed. So you have to kind of think and feel at the same time. I remember getting to the end of the story the first time through, and my head was spinning, and then I realized, oh, that's where it ends? So the wildfire is just all still there? As per usual, George has gradually built up to this reveal. And he already tipped his hand once when Tyrion learned about Eris's ripe fruits, as the alchemist put it. But for me, at least, that felt like a like a minor oversight. Ah, a couple of pots got loose, whatever. Not a gigantic ticking time bomb like it is now. Like, think about it. Everything we read about in the first two books in King's Landing, everything from Ned's POV and Tyrion and Sansa's, it all took place in this context. None of them knew they were walking on top of this stuff. <laughs> so is Jamie culpable in what happens next? Well, the wildfire just wasn't really his focus, I think, when Ned walked in. It was the realization that he had just been made an outcast, that the society he had saved had no room for him. And that's Jamie's journey in this book, opening himself up again to other people and opening himself up to himself. That's why the punctuation point to all this is not Eris or Ned or Cersei or anyone else. It's Jamie's interiority in the arms of Brienne saying, Jamie, my name is Jamie. He feels unburdened, as if he's lifted the weight on his shoulder. Finally, in sharing the truth with someone he's quote-unquote intimate with, Jamie can finally become himself again, to make himself whole spiritually, despite the fact that he will never be physically whole again. Whether he does a redemption arc or not, that's neither here or there at this point. None of that can even become a talking point unless he first acknowledges his own past, his own name. He spent the last two decades being the Kingslayer outwardly, and before he can start to play the part of Jamie Lannister outwardly, he has to turn inward first. And I couldn't give this whole spiel without briefly mentioning the show's version of the scene, which is my favorite scene in my favorite episode of my favorite season of HBO's Game of Thrones. For the most part, it's beat for beat with Jamie 5 A Storm of Swords. They pull back some of Jamie's jibes at Brienne, though not all of them, and mostly allow the actors to just do their thing. I will never not hear these lines of dialogue from Nikolai Kosterwaldar's voice. His tears, his anger, an undercurrent of relief through all the trauma that he is finally able to share with someone. And Gwendolyn Christie gives a great physical performance, having to be first annoyed at Jamie sharing a tub with her, then her being pulled into his kingslaying story. When she finally asks Jamie why he didn't tell anyone, it is coming from a place of compassion. She believes him, which is not something other people do when talking to an oathbreaker or a man without honor. The big change is, of course, the externalization of Jamie's last line. At the simplest level, it's just keeping with the show's aesthetic approach, no voiceover or internal monologue. But I do think there is a power in saying it aloud with Brianna's audience, as she really is the only one who views Jamie as Jamie, as a real person. Not as her other half like Cersei does, not like whatever the hell is going to happen when Tyrion hears about Tysha, and definitely not as the Kingslayer by the public at large. 
Part of the reason I made the joke in the recap about it ending right after this line is because the show has warped my perception of it. My name is Jamie just feels like one of George's mic drops at the end of a chapter. But wait, there's more. <laughs> right? How do you recover from that? And I think there's a case to be made that this chapter is, is like too much of a good thing, that maybe this, this should have been two chapters. But on this reread, it really worked for me that the chapter just immediately moves on. And that captures how the truth Jamie is revealing got swallowed up by history. Everyone just moved on. Jamie was left alone with the pain of it. And even now that he's finally told the story, he doesn't get to stop and relax. He still has to function in the present moment. He still has to be part of this war, too. It's a great way of expressing how painful realities like this live just under the surface. Imagine if the chapter started with Bruce Bolton. We'd feel completely different about that scene because we would feel different about Jamie. Now we know what he's thinking about in the back of his mind during every other scene. We're going to take that with us into every Jamie chapter going forward. After Kyburn helps Jamie recover from his shivering eruption, Brienne helps clean and clothe him. Very romantic. Well, actually not. It's more like a lived-in relationship between husband and wife. I get a little chuckle out of Jamie's remark about Kyburn's honey and vinegar tonic, followed by Brienne telling him to just drink it, and he does it without further objection. Just like my mom telling dad to take his medicine regardless how awful it tastes. Thankfully, my dad did not need to regrow a hand. <laughs> but if so, solution will be the same. Take your medicine, no matter how badly it tastes. And yeah, there is still that, that uh, romantic comedy angle to Jamie and Brienne. Obviously, it was way more prominent in previous chapters before everything went to shit, but it's still in there along with all the heavy stuff. Jamie cracks wise, and Brienne tells him to shove it. It's that friction that gradually turns affectionate as they get used to each other. Like everything they say to each other, it goes from genuine insults, and by the end of the book, it's, it's almost like pet names. That gets us to the second fireworks factory of this chapter. Though again, that's probably a misnomer, since fireworks are loud, and Roose Bolton is anything but. Spider soft is the term George uses to describe his voice. Silky and small, set against broken, stony, and gargantuan hall of Harrenhal's main keep. He even steals Podrick Payne's bit of welcoming them with a sir, my lady, in there. Bolton orders drinks for his guests, specifically saying Sir Jamie, where just about any other loyal northerner would have just said Kingslayer. Be prepared, a very subtle dance is about to take place in between the lines. The lines said by Roos and Jamie, but also the lines on the page that we are reading. Right after George delivers one of his best monologues, he gives a masterclass in dialogue. Just just think about the challenge George has set for himself in this scene. He has to have Roos communicate to Jamie that he has switched sides, without the first-time reader picking up on it, even though Jamie is our POV. How the hell do you pull that off? <laughs> it's a long, dense scene all built around a structuring absence. For all that Roos says here, and he says a lot, what matters most is what he doesn't say. Look at this scene from Bruce's perspective. Like, he's got this secret master plan running along smoothly. He got rid of a bunch of Stark loyalists at Duskendale, Rob's coalition shrunk further with the Starks defecting, the Freys are moving in for the kill, Tywin is ready with the prizes, and then Vargo Hote drops the Kingslayer in Bruce's lap, minus his sword hand. This has the potential to unravel everything. Tywin was willing to start a war for Tyrion, who he hates. What would he do for Jaime, his favorite child? Suddenly, it looks like Roos is facing the worst-case scenario, abandoning the Starks only to face retribution from the Lannisters. So Roos has to win over Jaime in order to stay in Tywin's good graces. But he can't just tell Jaime, look, your father and I have a deal going to drown Rob and his men in their own blood. I'll let you go if you agree to stop fucking it all up. <laughs> who knows who Jaime could tell? 
What if Brienne let that slip to someone who tells someone else who tells someone else who tells Rob? Uh, this might be unlikely, but Roos didn't get this far by playing fast and loose with discipline. So instead, Roos has to play this little game. I say has to, but what makes Roos such a fun character is how clearly he's enjoying this. Like a lot of aristocratic villains, he loves the sound of his own voice. We'll see that again with Theon in Barrowton in A Dance with Dragons. Roos is all about restrained tension. You sense the beast, coiled up inside, just barely hiding behind the mask of cool courtesy. As Jamie thought when he arrived at Harrenhal, Roos's restraint paradoxically makes him way scarier than a blatant monster like Vargo Hote. It fits Harrenhal. It fits this room, huge but empty, full of fireplaces but with no fires lit. The public performance of power with nothing behind it but the cold. Roos maintains that mask in order to socially and politically operate within his class, to be the kind of man for whom there are pardons, as he puts it, and there are no pardons for the likes of Vargo Hote. If you strip that mask away, Roos would be Ramsay, unchecked sadistic aggression. When Roos objects to Ramsay's behavior in A Dance with Dragons, it's not in terms of morality, it's in terms of social norms. You're just making us look bad. You gotta do this in secret like I do. <laughs> Here, Roos takes care to look good, seeing to every detail meticulously. The food, the drink, the conversation, he's the very image of chivalry. It's all to give Jamie the impression of someone he can trust and work with. But it's so disconcerting because right underneath it is the same violence he worked to prevent with Eris. Here we are in Harrenhal, living proof of what fire can do when put in service of ambition. Even as Roos offers wine, he mentions that it's mid because Amory Lorch drank all the good shit. You know, Amory Lorch, the guy I fed to a bear. <laughs> Roos offers prunes, and he can't help but mention that Vargo burned down the inn he got them from. Roos keeps hovering between politeness and threats, showing how they're two sides of the same coin. You can say all the right things and still be an unrepentant killer. So it takes Jamie a second to realize what time Bolton waltzes to. He opens hard, dismissing Roos's pleasantries and getting straight to the point. What do you plan to do with me? It's a little too to the point, too clumsy, perfectly captured by Jamie knocking down his wine cup with a stump only to catch it with his left. Jamie is uneven, so Roos takes the lead and then Jamie will catch on to the two-step that's happening. Roos answers with a faint smile. Jamie Lannister is a perilous prize. He could become rich selling him back to R River Run, or even richer to Jamie's sister. He could even get a new bride out of it from the Karstarks, though all the Carhold men were just sent off to Duskendale, which again should be setting off alarm bells in the reader's head. Like with the fall of Ned Stark, the fall of Rob Stark begins first by whittling down his own men, be it the Karstark and Frey abandonment, or the men sent off to Duskendale on a folly of an operation. In terms of the goat and Harrenhal, Roos means to give the latter to the former, saying Lannisters are not the only ones who pay their debts. This goes back to what I mentioned earlier, the Northerners being engaged in the same systems of violence as the Southron lords. Luckily for Jaime, Roos Bolton has no need for a wife. He married Fat Walda when they're at the Twins. Literally, the Freys and Boltons are in bed with each other. More alarm bells going off. Roos Bolton, ever the misogynist, only speaks to the women in terms of their size, their appearance, and most of all, the wealth that can come from them. Unsurprising for a dude who practices the outlawed first night tradition. But the marriage of Walda Frey is not the coupling that's the hot goss of Westeros. It's the pending nuptials between Rosalind Frey and Edmure Tully. 
which surprises both Brienne and Jamie, whose latest intel still had Rob marrying a Frey girl. Jamie racking his brain for any knowledge of the Westerlings or of this Jane, and ends up coming to the same conclusions as Catelyn Stark did. They're an old house, but not a powerful one. Brienne is more defiant, which is where Roos Bolton really starts sharpening his knives for her. His rebuke here is as nice as he will be towards Brienne. But poor Rob, thinks Jamie, losing the war in a bedchamber after somehow outclassing his father on the battlefield. Jamie asks about Walder Frey's take on all this, which Roos completely sidesteps. He just says a Tully marriage still has value and diverts to poor bereft Elmar Frey, who was to marry the Princess Arya Stark, but all that's been called off. Speaking of, Arya Stark is alive and well, and Roos Bolton is sending her north safe and sound. What a relief. <laughs> Elmar Frey's presence here is really intriguing, mostly in that this big red wedding precursor with one of its main architects has a Frey in the background. As with Fat Walda, the ties between Bolton and Frey are not being front and center, but they aren't being hidden from us, the reader, either. When Brienne brings up Tyrion's proposed exchange for the girls, Bolton's reply is, Lannister's lie. Which is extremely funny because Roose Bolton is about to be the lying liar who lies. <laughs> Jamie tries to work up some bluster threatening the Lord of the Dreadfort, but Bolton, lying liar who lies, says it's unchivalrous to threaten someone over the dinner table. The Lannisters may be rich, but not near as rich as Roose fucking Bolton, red wedding architect, talking about how laws of hospitality are to be respected. Does he have no shame? No, no, Roose Bolton has no shame. Yeah, this is one of those scenes that's so rewarding on reread when you realize that Roose is making fun of the norms he's about to obliterate. Olena pulls the same trick later in the book. Reacting to the Red Wedding, she tells Sansa and Tyrion that we can't go around killing men at weddings or they'll be even more afraid of marriage than they already are. And then she goes right ahead and kills Joffrey at his wedding. The first time reader can't pick up on that, but we still might pick up on how Roose's behavior here doesn't make sense if he's genuinely loyal to Rob Stark. Like Jamie says in that great line from the show, yeah, you ought to send me back to Rob, but instead you're watching me fail at dinner. Why might that Why? be? <laughs> so George has to distract us. He has Roose bring up the Starks and Rob's wedding to Jane Westerling, the broken marriage pact with Elmar Frey. And this stuff matters, of course, but its main purpose here is to keep us focused on anything except Roose's motivations. His comment about Arya being alive really throws the first-time reader for a loop. We know that Arya was Roose's cupbearer for a while, but she was posing as a peasant. Does this mean he knows the truth he knew all along? But wait, Arya's off with the Brotherhood right now. What does it all mean? Our first time through, we have no idea. But we do know about Rob marrying Jane Westerling, which comes as news to Jamie and Brienne. Jamie understands the implications of this immediately, and I love that he almost feels sorry for Rob, despite <laughs> Rob having, you know, kicked his ass and held him prisoner. Like I said earlier, Jamie is invested in the warrior culture that honors Rob for his triumphs on the battlefield. He's the young wolf. So he sympathizes with Rob for having done that difficult task so well, but then fucking up what really ought to have been a layup. Jamie might be thinking about himself here. While the Lannisters are winning on the battlefield right now, their primary weakness is what he got up to in the bedchamber, specifically fathering three kids on his sister. As for Brienne, throughout this scene, she sticks to what she sees as the letter of the law. Rob is an honorable king who will keep his vows, and we've been sent as lawful emissaries to exchange Jamie for the Stark sisters, so Roose ought to let us go do that. It's just like when she said in the bathtub that Robert rode to save the realm. And once again, the reality is darker and more complicated. Roos points out the contradiction here. Brienne can't praise Rob as a righteous authority 
and then turn around and help Jamie escape from him. Brienne says she serves Catelyn. That's why she's here with Jamie. But that is politically untenable, because Catelyn's power derives from Rob and Edmure, both of whom want Jamie back pronto, now if not sooner. Roose is just slippery enough to navigate his own contradictions. He serves the king in the north, or the king who lost the north. Other people call him that, not me, even though I just did. When Brienne says that Rob would never break his marriage pact, Roos says only that Rob is a boy of 16. Boys will be boys. Young hotshots don't necessarily make the best politicians. And George pulls off this perfect balancing act here. It wouldn't make sense for Roos to be totally gung-ho about how things are going with Rob. Nope, everything's great. Love him just as much as always. That really would set off alarm bells, even for the first-time reader. We would be looking for the betrayal after that. Instead, Roos just seems to be kind of looking for a way out of this. You don't get the sense he already has an active plan in the works. Same deal with Walter Frey. George doesn't try to make you think he still likes Rob, he just fools you as to the scope of Walter's revenge. You think it's going to be a few comments, you know, a snarky aside, and oh no, it turns out to be mass murder. When Jamie bluntly says he's no guest, he's a prisoner of war, and one that's been maimed at that, Roos Bolton is no longer faint smiles and small chuckles. This is where we pivot to the meat of this dinner, and I don't mean the roast that Elmar Frey is serving up. <laughs> Though do pay attention to the actual dinner. Uh-huh. The meat described as dark and bloody, how Roos Bolton eats it with surgical precision, while Jamie isn't e- even able to cut his meat. His own bandaged stump is covered in blood and wine, as the red wedding foreshadowing continues unabated. Jamie realizes what game is afoot, and his line, but does the wench know as well, is about us the readers as much as it is about Brienne. The talk of Lannister friendship and enmity is of no interest to Brienne, who is still working off the arrangement forged by Catelyn and Tyrion. Bolton continues to grow cooler with her, saying it was an escape and Brienne is guilty of treason, just like Catelyn. His reference to the king who lost the North, even under the Trump-like, some people are saying, framing, (laughs) should be setting off even more alarm bells, like Emmett just pointed out. Jamie has to coax Brienne back to her seat, and Rue says he fully intends to send Jamie back to King's Landing, which pacifies the Nottonite for a moment. But this mollification is so that Roos can get to his point, the difficulty he must address. Vargo Hote's mutilation of Jamie was not one of his normal mutilations. This one actually has a very specific purpose. For as slobbering a fool as the goat appears, he must have some low cunning to hold together the brave companions. Hote was promised Hall in exchange for his betrayal of Tywin, not knowing that the real curse is not in the castle, but crossing the Lord of Casterly Rock. Bolton mentions the reigns in Tarbex, only the second mention of either household all series, the first coming back in Tyrion 3 of this book. And that's for a good reason. There are no reigns in Tarbex. <laughs> We've talked a lot about how each Act 2 chapter of A Storm of Swords seems to have some ingredient related to the Red Wedding, and this chapter has a whole damn spice rack full of them. Mm-hmm. Hote's betrayal was precipitated on a Stannis victory at the Blackwater, even if Stannis Baratheon himself would not suffer someone like Vargo Hote. The goat knows Stannis about as well as he understands Tywin. But with Stannis defeated, Vargo's only hope is that the Starks win the war, and, well, they're losing it right now. Lannister power has been consolidated thanks to the House Tyrell, Rob Stark has lost two of his most important bannermen, and his castle and his kingdom are lost to him as well. Vegas odds on the Stark cause have never been worse. So the mammification of Jamie was Vargo's gamble. 
make Jamie a non-threat, then hole up in Harrenhal under Roos's banner, which gives him some level of protection from all those out searching for the Kingslayer. The hand removal also makes Jamie a poison prize if Bolton returned Jamie to his father. This, I think, is also strategically placed after Davos 4. Stannis, Davos, and Sir Axel spoke at length about whether followers are culpable for the crimes of their liege lord, and here we have Roos taking that part of the feudal contract very seriously. As such, Bolton is as much at fault for Jaime's hand as the goat, or at least he could be in the eyes of Tywin Lannister. Roos, being the smooth operator that he is, stops just short of saying what he needs, but he looks at Jaime expectantly, hoping his meaning is understood. And it is. I don't want to praise Jamie too much. Well, too late for that, I guess. But Jamie has always played the role of soldier. Politics are for other people. I'm no good at this cloak and dagger Machiavelli shit. He fights with swords, not words. But Jamie is observant and more cunning than he lets on, going back to his sapphire gambit with the goat. And his journey into feast and dance will be more about Jamie the politician than Jamie the warrior. So in that, it's important for George to show Jamie doesn't have just three brain cells between those beautiful years of his. Jamie promises to sing the sweetest song ever heard if Bolton sends him on home, by which I assume he means he's going to sing Mr. Brightside by the Killers to his father. <laughs> Not only would he do it, but he knows that's what Bolton needs to hear, and he needs to hear it plainly at that. He will literally vouch for Roose Bolton as his burly protector, his savior in the face of the treacherous bloody mummers. I love the accumulation of details here that you, you tracked it so well. It's like the previous scene in terms of the buildup, but while Jamie's story led to a big reveal, Roos stops just short, covering it up with euphemisms, uh, my small difficulty. So all you're left with are the hints. Roos's steady gaze that George describes as unblinking, expectant, chill. You got the blood on his plate as he slices into his meat, and his smiles, very quick smiles, there and gone. Just like how Tywin threatened to smile earlier in the book when Tyrion came very, very close to figuring out the Red Wedding. Such terrifying little moments, just like the shine in Russart's eyes. The Game of Thrones is fueled by blood, but the players have no incentive to say that out loud. As Tywin tells Tyrion, Robert wanted Rhaegar's children dead to secure his throne, but he saw himself as a hero like in Brienne's story, and heroes don't kill children. That contradiction feeds into Jaime's conflicted inner monologue. He thinks about the possibility that Cersei will maim the Stark girls in revenge. He flinches at the thought, and then tells himself he'll get blamed for it like all the rest. I think it's fair to say that Jaime is genuinely horrified at the prospect of Cersei cutting off those kids' hands, but he can't fully inhabit that horror, even in the privacy of his own thoughts. He has to redirect it into his usual sullen resentments, because that's how he dealt with the aftermath of the Kingslaying, and he's gotten so used to that coping mechanism that he can't imagine anything else. Jamie has to cope with a world in which acts of horrific violence are not outliers. They constitute the seizure and execution of political power. That's Roos's point here, as he breaks down Vargo Hote's motivations in detail. Turns out he's not just a sadist who enjoys hurting people for its own sake. As horrible as that would be, it would also be easy to isolate. Instead, Roos argues, Vargo maimed Jamie as a rational response to the shifting politics of Westeros at war but he's limited by his ignorance about the players and rules of that game. Vargo betrayed the Lannisters because Roos offered him Harrenhal. Did Vargo know that Roos really has no authority to do that, and that Rob and or Edmure could revoke it at any time? Well, probably not. Like Rob, he was hoping that Stannis would win at the Blackwater. 
It's a enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. Everyone who hates the Lannisters can get together on that basis. And like Rob, Vargo now has to deal with the worst case scenario. The Lannisters not only won the battle, but also made rich and powerful friends in the Tyrells. Tywin now has the capacity to take revenge on Vargo for his betrayal, just like he's taking revenge on Rob. So this little story Roos is telling us is actually a confession about the Red Wedding, just in disguise. The difference, as Roos says, is that a pardon was never on the table for Vargo Hote. Like if Stannis had one at the Blackwater, I think he would have, reluctantly, sent terms to Rob rather than immediately make war on him. But there would have been no such deal on the table for Vargo. Roos points out that Vargo's ignorance about Westerosi players hurt him again here, and I love his description of what Stannis would do with Vargo, even though I don't imagine when Roos and Stannis would have hung out, like Roos has Stannis' number, knows him very well. Yeah, he would have rewarded Vargo with Harrenhal for turning on the Lannisters, but then also hang him for his crimes. A good act doesn't wash out the bad, after all, each should have its own reward. And unlike Rob, no one would stick up for Vargo Ho. He's useful to everyone, until he's useful to no one. He can belong to any side, which is a strength, but it means he truly belongs to no side, which is a weakness. So all Vargo can do is scramble for a way out, as the walls close in all around him. And I think George plays this just right. He's not angling for us to sympathize with the Bloody Mummers, how could we? Instead, he's showing us how the brutality and chaos of the mercenary world is a mirror of how the officially powerful people operate. For all that Vargo is monstrous and terrifying, for all the damage he did to Jamie, he seems suddenly so small next to the system in which he operates. Roos is ultimately doing the same thing, just a, another rung up the ladder. He's moving his pieces around the board in order to try and secure his own survival. This very weird dinner ends in a very weird place for Jamie. Roos Bolton trusting him to his word. He again calls him sir, and I think it's worth highlighting that at no point does Bolton refer to Jamie as Kingslayer. But as if this chapter didn't have enough already, we have two twists of the knife to go. First, Lady Sansa will not be returned to Winterfell. She's married to Tyrion, which shocks both Jamie and Brienne. Brienne is aghast that Tyrion would go back on his word, less so because of Tyrion and more so because if Catelyn Stark trusted him, then so did she. Jamie, meanwhile, wonders if his brother is happy now, which he isn't, and once again <laughs> very briefly mentions the crofter's daughter. The Jamie chapters have been dribbling out little mentions of Taisha here and there, and I do think Jamie's turn towards truth in the bathtub earlier was a necessary step towards Jamie telling the truth to his brother at book's end. But that can wait as the second knife is revealed. Brienne is being handed over to the goat. Damn, Bolton knives are sharp. Her fate now rests on the promise of sapphires that will never come. An ironic ending to this chapter, one where Jamie Lannister finally comes forth with the truth, but has condemned his partner with his most recent lie. Yeah, what a perfect gut punch to end the chapter with. You sigh with relief, only for it to catch in your throat. Same goes for Jamie. For him, this dinner went about as well as it possibly could have. But what about Brienne? Well, who cares? Jamie doesn't. He's too cool to care about anything, right? But he already made himself vulnerable saving Brienne from the mummers. He already revealed that he cares what happens to her. And like you said, the irony is perfect in that the lie Jamie used to save her is now being used to doom her. So it's more than just walking away from her. Jamie is partially responsible for her fate now. And how he handles that demonstrates his evolution even more than telling the truth to Brienne in the first place, which we will get to over the course of the next couple Jamie chapters. So pivoting into our foreshadowing and groundwork, 
There are two big pieces of foreshadowing that come up in this chapter, daughters of Northern Lords and their roles in the Game of Thrones. We get our first mention of Alice Karstark, who Lord Karstark has promised to any man who captures Jamie Lannister. The internal po- politics of Carhold come back in a major way in Dance and Winds, with Alice's flight to the Wall, as well as Karstark involvement in Stannis' camp. Yeah, that's something I really love about Dance, is how George kind of has to reshuffle the Northern game board because he killed off a lot of people in Storm of Swords. But he has these relatives, a lot of whom he's mentioned once or twice in passings. So he's like, all right, you're, you're off the bench. Come on in. You're the players now. And Alice is a great example of that. We get her mentioned a couple times here. So when she shows up in dance, we're like, oh, right, of course. We, yeah, you, you were mentioned. I know you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're able to just kind of hit the ground running in terms of her motivations. The other is the resurfing of quote-unquote Arya Stark, and I cannot put enough quotes around Arya Stark to make my point. Bolton hints at the Jane Poole deception at the end of this book, and it will be through Jamie's eyes that we will first see the return of Jane to our narrative. Yeah, this is a great example of the, the threefold revelation stuff, that, that, that buildup that George likes in terms of his big reveals. Because like I said, the first time through this chapter, you have no idea what Roos could possibly be talking about. And you're kind of worried for Arya, even though logically you shouldn't be. And then the next time this comes up is right after the Red Wedding, when T- T- Tywin is dividing the spoils and telling Tyrion who's getting what. And he mentions Roos gets to take home Ned Stark's daughter, Arya. And Tyrion's like the one we haven't seen for literal years now. And it's, uh, Tywin has this line like, yeah, you know, sure, Arya's dead, but so was Renly until the Blackwater. So that's another hint like, oh, they're going to be faking it. There's, there's, there's trickery involved. And then uh, finally, when you get to Jamie's last chapter in Storm, he sees a girl that calls herself Arya Stark. But Jamie's like, yeah, OK, I guess the real Arya is in an unmarked grave somewhere in Flea Bottom. Good luck, whoever you are. And then eventually, of course, we get to spend a lot of time with her, with Jane Poole in Theon's chapter in Dance, which are some of the highlights of those already really great chapters. So great build up, great execution on George's part. So taking us into our theory and discussion uh, portion of the episode, like I said earlier, although I had a lot of thoughts my first time through that Jamie scene in the bathtub, the one big one when I got to the end was like, oh, so the, all the wildfire is still there is what you're telling me? And... You know, obviously, you don't put a bunch of wildfire on the wall unless you're going to take it down and fire it. We got a Chekhov's wildfire situation here. So how do you, how do you think this is going to going to pay off? Uh, so I think I'm going to parrot the most popular take here because I think it wraps up a lot of these storylines pretty well. Um, I think Cersei is obviously trending towards being a major wildfire user, or at least it seems that way in A Feast for Crows. Um, there might be a situation where she might want to burn King's Landing to prevent young Griff or Daenerys from taking it from her. Um, Jamie steps in and he stops her. So he becomes a queen slayer on top of possibly being a king slayer. Um, and then, you know, Daenerys comes with her dragons and possibly lights it up anyways. And King's Landing burns. Um, so that way the wildfire goes off. You have Jamie and Cersei still kind of dying next to each other. So it kind of fulfills the Valencar prophecy. Um, it's a little too neat and it makes... <laughs> Um, it's kind of a very specific prediction, which will probably look bad for me in the long run. But it just it's one of those like theories. I think uh, you've talked about it a little bit as well, where it does kind of seemly, seemingly wrap up a lot of various storylines, some prophecies, what to do with the wildfire, all kind of in one go. Um, I do think the wildfire will go off and I think it will be an accident in the long run, even if someone like Cersei is trying to set it off intentionally at some point. Yeah, agreed. I think there's a there's a, a neatness to that, which I think works so well, kind of an elegance to it in terms of how many characters it brings together. Because 
Obviously, Tyrion is going to be advising Danny at that point. And unlike the show, Tyrion is not doing okay right now. <laughs> Tyrion's in a very dark place where he is in the books, and he is interested in getting involved with Daenerys mostly to get revenge on his family. So I think you could, I could easily see a situation in which Tyrion realizes that the wildfire is there, at least to some extent, because he knows about Eris's ripe fruits from Clash of Kings, but he doesn't tell Danny about it. And then, so when the that that explosion goes off, they're both kind of partially culpable. And I think it, it the way Cersei acts about the wildfire in a feast for crows, I think, is a big tell that this is how we're going to wrap Jamie and Cersei's stories back together. And there's an there's an irony in that if I would just love if Jamie had to turn against the sister he loves in order to prevent her from becoming another Mad King if he saved the city again or was up trying to save the city again, but it went off anyway because of Eris's last kid <laughs> coming back to take back the realm that Jamie helped take down. Like, that is that is pretty perfect. Like you said, that's a, that's a very specific situation we're outlining. You know, all it takes is one domino changing to make that untenable. But... I yeah, I think that's probably the most the most likely scenario. I think I think that that fits everybody involved. So that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, Jamie 5. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes, early access to our regular episodes, access to the Nata Slack, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can follow me at Porkwenton on Twitter. And I'm Manu. You can find me at the Nuclear Bomb. And I do want to say that Not a Cast ASOIAF now exists on Instagram. Yep, yep. Um, who knows what we're going to post there? So far, we got some chapter previews, uh, me doing a fake TikTok, and some pictures of our cats. Um, I hope to use the space going more going forward. So give us a follow, and hopefully, we'll bring some nice video and picture content to your screens. Absolutely. Uh, next week, my next Star Wars episode is going to come out. Next episode on Revenge of the Sith is going to be out for all of our patrons. My latest Lord of the Rings episode, wrapping up Book 5 with the Black Gate Opens, is up for all of our $5 and above patrons now. And next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, Tyrion welcomes the most badass, charismatic character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Pedro Pascal. I mean Oberyn Martell. Tell your father I'm here. Tyrion's there, kind of, really, but that, that chapter is almost all Oberyn Martell absolute classic intro that's one i've been looking i I keep saying i've been looking forward to that one for a while but that's true just true of all these awesome chapters in midstorm looking forward to all of them so uh thank you again for listening and we will see you next time in westeros for a storm of swords Tyrion five